if, if you have your Bible, please open it to Judges chapter 20. Napoleon is a famous French military leader. It's been said that the French, one of the best, the good thing that, one of the things that they're most known for aside from French fries is that they lose in war a lot. But Napoleon was the exception to that in some ways. Uh, he was an emperor of the French during the French Revolutionary Wars, and he's considered one of the greatest military minds and leaders in history. During one of his campaigns to Poland, Napoleon was able to capture some of the Russians, and before and as they were brought in, some of them were some of these Russians decided to almost like taunt Napoleon. One of the Russians' remarks to Napoleon was that the Russians were superior to the French. He said, and I'm not going to do like a Russian accent, but he said. We Russians, for instance, fight for honor. You French fight only for gain. To which Napoleon replied, You are quite right. Each fights for which he does not possess. The implication is that the Russians have no honor while the French have no possessions. <laughs> and when I read this quote, I thought about time of the judges. These people were fighting for something that they did not possess. In the time of the judges, they were fighting for justice, but they didn't really have any sense of justice because they were doing what is right in their own eyes. They kept fighting and fighting, and things just get worse and worse because they were not submitting to the word of God. Rather, they were bowing down to their own flesh. Now, I know we're going into 2020, and that's election year, and it should be encouragement to us that no matter how bad any future leaders may be, it is not nearly as bad as the people in the time of the judges. Now, just to give us some background to remind us what's going on and what's been happening in this uh, chapter 20, kind of leading into it. The Levites, there's this uh, unnamed Levite. He wanted to reach this town, go, go home. But when he arrived to the place of Gibeah where the Benjamites lived, they didn't show him any hospitality. And there was an old man, if you recall, that did not live there but was willing to house them. He said, hey, you, you need to get out of this, the city square. You need to be, get out of there because this is a very dangerous place. And when they got into the home, though, it said in Judges 19 that there were a whole bunch of worthless men that came into the city or came around the house and surrounded them and asked them to bring that man out. The implication is that they wanted to have their way with him, to, uh, to rape this one man to rape this priest. And they offered, the, the, the man and the priest offered, hey, we could give with the daughter and the concubine. The, the Levite had this concubine with them, and we said last week the way that they used concubines was more like a mistress. It's the one that they had all the pleasures with. They took care of them, but they didn't have any marriages with them. So they told him, hey, uh, we'll give you one of these two. And you recall at the end of chapter 19, the Levite was one who brought her out, and she was raped to death. And then the next day, uh, as she came back from all the assaults, he tripped over her and realized that she was there. Oh, and she's like, he tells her to get up, and she's, she doesn't because she's dead. And then he cuts her up into 12 parts and sends it all over to the, the, the 12 tribe of Israel. And the last chapter ends with verse 30 that says, that nothing like this has ever happened or, or been seen from the day when the sons of Israel came up from the land of Egypt to this day. Everyone fights for what they desire to gain. 
We know that if you dabble or indulge in sin, that is what you're going to be fighting for, and it will only lead to suffering. Sin only leads to pain. How do we know if we're pursuing sin and not holiness? What signs are there in our lives that tell us that we are more in sin than we would like to admit? We need to evaluate our own life to see if we are any of these character traits. And this is going to be our outline this morning. Because if you continue living in sin, chances are you're going to ruin your life. Just not even, not even your, your earthly life, but we're talking about even your spiritual walk. And over time, your heart might become callous to the word of God. To the point where you become like Romans 1, where God gives you over to your sin. And apostasy follows. So I want to help us see sin, understand more of what sin is so that we can guard ourselves from callousness, so we can guard ourselves from, from apostasy. So I have a, several points this evening. The first is going to be sin makes you self-righteous. Sin makes you self-righteous. One thing you need to understand and know about sin is that it makes you self-righteous. Chapter 20, verse 1. Then all the sons of Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, including the land of Gilead, came out, and the congregation assembled as one man to the Lord at Mizpah, a chief of all the people, even of, even of all the tribes of Israel, took their stand in the assembly of the people of God, 400,000 foot soldiers who drew the sword. Now the sons of Benjamin heard that the sons of Israel had gone up to Mizpah, and the sons of Israel said, tell us, what did... What did this wickedness take place? So the Levite, the husband of the woman who was murdered, answered and said, I came with my concubine to spend the night at Gibeah, which belonged to the Benjamin. But the men of Gibeah rose up against me and surrounded the house at night because of me. They intended to kill me. Instead, they ravished my concubine so that she died. And I took hold of my concubine and cut her in pieces and sent her throughout the land of Israel's inheritance, for they have committed a lewd and disgraceful act in Israel. Behold, all you sons of Israel, give your advice and counsel here. The story continues. And the entire nation of Israel assembled, minus the Benjamites, came together to figure out what just happened. Why did they receive this bloody package? You'll notice that there's a phrase, including the land of Gilead. And this is significant because there's this one little tribe that decided to stay before they crossed the Jordan. In the book of Joshua, they were, they were, before they uh, got out of the wilderness, they were supposed to go over to the side. But this one little tribe decided to stay on the, the, other, <clears throat> the other side of the Jordan because they liked that land. It's like, hey, we'll stay here, but when you guys, if you guys need anything, let us know and we'll come over and we'll fight. And so this was going on. They got everyone. Everyone came to fight and to figure out what is going on. The nation of Israel as a whole all just lived in their own territories, but this event was so significant that everyone united. They were not united in anything else. Remember, this is a time where everyone was doing right, was right in their own eyes, but this problem is so big that they decided to come together. This is such an atrocity that everyone decided, okay, we have this, okay, this is really a problem. We need to unite to deal with this. I have two siblings, and I remember when we were kids, we would always argue about things. We'll make fun of each other. We'll pick on each other. We'll even fight with each other. But when someone else, some other kid, picks on any of us, we're like, okay, we will put all of our differences aside, and we'll mess this one kid up. Usually it's just between my brother and I messing this one individual up. That was before I was saved. 
But you understand the principle, right? Like, you could have all of these divisions. You could do what's right in your own eyes. But then there's something that's so bad that united everyone together. That's what this picture is. And you notice that they assembled as one. This is going to be a phrase that shows up multiple times, that everyone there united and worked as one army. Every tribe was doing what was right, but this is something that everyone came together for. The division of this one concubine has brought the entire nation together. The situation was so bad that the only comparable people that did this was all the way back in Sodom and Gomorrah. And those were pagan Gentiles. In this situation, it is one of their own people committing this type of sin. God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, and now the Israelites were supposed to be in the land as God's chosen people to represent him. But even though they were in the land, there was no unity until this sin brought everyone together. This, this, this concubine was butchered up and divided up, but it united God's people. You notice in verse 4 to 6, they asked the, the Levite, hey, what happened? And the Levite explains all that happened. The Levite explained what happened by telling what happened from his side of the story. The key word is his side. If, as, as I was reading this, you notice that there are some parts that were missing. The priest missed the information about how she actually um, was brought out, that he brought her out to be violated. The priest admits the part how he was one, the one that placed him out there. He forgot to mention that he was leaving, that he went, um, and that's how he found her, that he tripped over her. He created a narrative to get the Israelites riled up against the Benjamites. This priest, who is supposed to be someone that knows, teaches, and practices the law of God, violated God's commandment in not bearing a false witness as well as lying. That's two of the Ten Commandments, lying and bearing a false witness. In fact, in Leviticus 19, verse 16, these are, this, is a, this, is a, this is a passage about what the Levites are supposed to be. This is a book about how the Levites will conduct themselves and how they're supposed to teach the Israelites uh, how to live. Leviticus 19, verse 16 said, You shall not go... A, about as a slander among your people, and you're not to act against the life of your neighbor. This priest violated that law. He decided to defame them. He decided to hold some information back and tell a lie or a half-truth about the Benjamites in hopes that they will be destroyed. And that's what's going on in this Leviticus passage, saying that if, when you slander someone, you're, take, you're attempting to take their life. And that's what the, this priest did. This is a wicked priest. The priest uses position to move others into sin. There's little question about his testimony, which is a folly for the 11 tribes. Back then when something, when there was supposed to be some sort of accusation, they were supposed to have two or three witnesses. But the entire tribe just forgot, didn't care about God's law and decided to just l- listen to this priest. There was a lack of discernment or lack of desire to know the truth, which again is no surprise since this entire nation was driven by their own passions instead of driven by truth. If you call the priest, not only failed to do the right thing, but he failed to speak up against evil. He was a priest. And again, you can see that there's this hypocrisy here because the priest said he had a concubine, right? That this is already something wrong here. But then again, the entire nation was doing right with his own eyes and they did not care that this priest, so this will be an holy individual, has a concubine. 
This priest, he knew the word of God. It was his job to point out sin and call out people for repentance. Instead, he decides to play this little victim card here. And it's interesting, at the very end of verse 7, he tells him to give your advice and counsel here. He should know the answer. This isn't a difficult question. He did not condemn sin, but instead he made himself look like he was all innocent. He attempted to protect himself more than the word of God. Sin makes you a hypocrite. It makes you self-righteous. It makes you prop yourself up. Sin makes you preserve yourself from the consequences. Sin diverts responsibility from self and puts it onto others. This is exactly, what's hap- this is exactly what happened in the garden. Right after Adam and Eve sinned against God, the first thing they did was, well, the first thing that God did when he confronted them was that they blamed each other. Eve blamed the serpent, Adam blamed Eve, and then essentially Adam actually blamed God. This is, a nat- this is part of the sinful nature that we react when we commit sin. We want to guard ourselves, we want to protect ourselves so that we will not be exposed as the wretch that we are. Now, if you continue to live in, live in sin, you'll find that all that you do is either when people confront you on your sin is either to deflect the confront- confrontation or downplay the severity of sin or to blame ship. All three responses are sinful. Whenever we fail to do the right thing, whenever we sin, we must always go to the Lord and confess it to him. Sin will make, will make you hold up certain standards, but not others. This priest was offended by rape, but he was totally fine with having a concubine. There's a reason why Jesus tells people to take out the log out of their own eye instead of the speck in other people because Jesus wanted to show us that all of us are in need of grace and mercy. And if you don't see yourself as a sinner, you will think of yourself as a righteous person. You'll think of yourself as a good person. And there's, if you've ever done evangelism, if you ever share the gospel with someone, there's going to be a part where they're going to resist. And the thing that they resist is not the fact that Jesus paid the way to go to heaven. What they will resist is the fact that they will resist that they are a sinner. They don't like to acknowledge their own sin because they are self-righteous. And I wonder if that's some of you today. Do you see yourself as a good person? The Bible is clear that there is none righteous, not even one, and that includes you. You need to see yourself as a sinner before you get saved. And there are some Christians uh, that think that just because they're saved by faith that they're still a good person. No, we live by grace. We know that the righteousness that's given to us is from Christ. And all that we are, all the good thing that we, that we do in this life is because of what Christ has done through us. It is not because of our own. Not only does sin make you self-righteous, but sin makes you defend sin. Sin causes you to protect your sin. That's their second point. Sin makes you defend sin. Another marker that your life is compromised by sin is that you will do all that you can to defend your sin. You will attempt to justify it by hiding it and not repenting. Verse 8, Then all the people arose as one man, saying, Not one of us will go to his tent, nor will any of us return to his house. But now this is the thing which we will do to Gibeah. We will go up against it by lot. And we will go take ten men out of a hundred throughout the tribe of Israel and a hundred of out of 1,000, 1,000, out of 10,000 to supply food for the people that when they came to Gibeah of Benjamin, they may punish them for all the disgraceful acts they have committed in Israel. Thus all the 
men of Israel were gathered against the city, united as one man. So just to summarize, this entire nation gathered. They, were, they divided up different people to, to do different tasks. There's a certain amount of people that are going to fight. There's other people who are going to support the people that are fighting. Verse 12, then the tribes of Israel sent men throughout the entire tribe of Benjamin, saying, what is this wickedness that has taken place among you? Now then deliver up the men, the worthless fellows in Gibeah, that we may put them to death and remove this wickedness from Israel. But the sons of Benjamin would not listen to the voice of their brothers, the sons of Israel. They went up and they demanded the Benjamites to bring out those wicked individuals, to hand them over. But the Benjamites, instead of telling them who they are, they decided to protect them. The right thing would have been to unite with the Israelites. The Benjamites should have united with the rest of the tribes to, go, to, just, to find these individuals. But they did not listen. Instead, they chose to side with the rapists. This is how bad things were. The Benjamites, knowing what some of their, their own people did, instead of casting them out, decided to hide them, to protect them. Instead of calling these individuals to repentance. Now, this is the attitude of these Benjamites describe you. How many of you are the same way? Instead of turning away from your sin, you go against the truth. Look at verse 14. The sons of Benjamin gathered from the cities of Gibeah to go out to battle against the sons of Israel. From the cities on that day, the sons of Benjamin were numbered 26,000 men who draw the sword besides inhabitants of Gibeah who were numbered 700 choice men. Out of all of these people, 700 choice men were left-handed. Each one could sling a stone at a hair and not miss. They went up against Israel. They had this massive army of 26,000 Benjamites, and you'll notice that there's 700 that are left-handed marksmen. In this phrase, each one could sling a stone at a hair and not miss. These were people that were a unique bunch. Statistically, and just you know, through science, there's about 15% of the people in the world uh, that, are, that are left-handed. So it wasn't a great amount. In fact, back then, when you're left-handed, they, ra- they would rather you just do something else. Because a left-handed person means that they have to train, somehow like revert everything. You know, they're not cool southpaw fighters. They just want people that are, that are normal fighters. So that's why uh, it's unique when you do have these uh, 700 people that can, throw, uh, that, that can um, throw these stones and these slingshots. Don't think of it as like you know, those little Y-shaped things that the kids use. You know, not those. Back then, it was like a little rod. It had like, it's like the lacrosse type of thing. You know what the lacrosse team, like they have the little nets? It's like that. That's how a sling was back then. They would swing it, and you can even buy some of these in the, in the Middle East right now. Dale's over there. We should ask him to buy, bring one of those things back. But that's what the, those things are, these, these slings. And they can, they can swing it. And it's, it's, it's significant that it's left-handed because, again, most people fought with the right hand. So there's certain... So they assumed that if everyone was fighting the right hand, that means certain gears were, were, were favoring that side. But these people were deadly because they could attack from an angle that they were not expecting. These were extremely effective people, and they were left-handed. And now there's a whole bunch of irony here because the, the word Benjamin means son of the right hand. So it's ironic that the son of the right hand has a whole bunch of left-handed fighters. Again, this term, son of my right hand, is this idea of, of showing favorite, right? This is, this is used in Genesis when Jacob lost his son Joseph, and his, his other son, Benjamin, is he, 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 he's named that because this is favorite. So even though the Benjamites were known as the favorite one, they were doing this incredibly wicked thing. 
Even though they're known as the right hand, they have a whole bunch of left-handed fighters, and they are now currently the most hated individuals. This is an interesting thing because they may have been able to hit and split the hair with the stone, but they were not able to hit God's standard of holiness. I wonder if this is some of us. We're able to achieve great things in life except when it comes to our own holiness. We'll, make, we'll do all the, the, the actions needed to be able to be successful in our school, in our, in our jobs. But when it comes to spiritual disciplines for our own godliness, we let those things go. We let it slide. You, you, might, like, you might discipline yourself in terms of going to the gym or you discipline yourself in, in watching a show. But when it comes to the word of God, we seem to lack and desire to accomplish those things. You may be skilled in so many areas except the word of God. And if you are like that, then that is completely useless. It doesn't matter how much of the things of the world you know or how, much, how gifted you are in things of the world. If you do not know God's word, then everything is vain. Verse 17. Then the men of Israel besides Benjamin were numbered 400,000 men who drew the sword. All these were men of war. The Benjamites decided to bring out 400,000 men to go against this entire nation of Israel instead of just turning those wicked men because of their own sin. And Israel realized that they're actually their own worst enemy. Israel should have, should have used all their power to go against the Canaanites, but instead they're using all their power against one another. If they were faithful, if they were doing what they're doing now, but instead of to the Benjamites, but to the Canaanites, they would not be in this situation right now. They would have been spared from the civil war. But all of this could have been averted if the Benjamites just, avert, just handed over these wicked men of sin. Verse 13, they, they, had, they just brought these people out and none of this would have escalated. But, because, but perhaps because of their own pride, because of their own sinfulness, they chose to hide these individuals to protect those worthless and sinful Benjamites. In church... Church history is always helpful because it gives us illustrations of biblical truth, and sometimes it gives us ways in which people fail. My wife and I were in Seattle not long ago, and uh, we went to this church, and I only found out recently that the whole, the most of the congregation there are people that left Mars Hill, or the Acts 29 church, and you're, you're familiar with this. This is pastor by Mark Driscoll, and then for a while, he was known as, like, the cool, hip pastor. Uh, he was invited to do all these conferences. He was a gifted preacher. A lot of my friends uh, debated over him in terms of, oh, this guy's godly or not, but then they all loved his preaching. They loved his, his, his expositional skill, his, his oratory skill and everything, and there was this whole, deb- toward the end of his ministry, when he was disqualified, there was like a whole bunch of people that came up and said, like, oh, this person said, Driscoll said this about me. He was this heavy-handed leader. In fact, like the reason why he was caught to get, to get disqualified, one of the main things was because he wanted to get his books to get on the top-selling New York Times. So he actually he got the church to purchase a whole bunch of books just to kind of inflate the sales. And then it was found out they, you know, they, they busted him and he was disqualified and then a lot of people were hurt. You know, they didn't confront Driscoll on his sin. He did a whole bunch of other things that eventually were exposed, but no one wanted to call him out. They wanted to protect him, whether it's because of their own pride, because, like, you know, back then when Driscoll was there, yeah, he was a, it was a unique pastor in a, in a place that's really dark. But that doesn't justify that you can live your own sin. 
pragmatism is not <clears throat> justification for sin. <clears throat> After the entire debacle, there were a whole bunch of people confessing their sins and asking for forgiveness. But had they sided with God first, instead of letting this wicked leader do whatever he wanted, and if, you know, if they had, had they not let him go, there wouldn't have been this, almost like this, it tainted the name of Christ in that area. And if it could happen in Israel, if it could happen in Seattle, it could also happen here as well. Don't assume just because we are in a church with good and sound doctrine that people are incapable of turning against one another. That's what sin does. It makes us want to guard our own sin or guard other people from sin instead of exposing the sin. Sin can give us this idea that as long as you have good doctrine, you can do whatever you want. When sin becomes a norm in the life of a Christian, eventually that sin will spread and it will cause tension within the church. This is like the Corinthian church. Right? When Paul was speaking to the, the Corinthian church, these were people that had all these spiritual gifts, they had all this good t- teaching, but they did not expose sin. They allowed sin to go rampant throughout the entire church. Good doctrine doesn't automatically mean faithful living. And if you live in sin, it doesn't matter what doctrine you hold, it will ruin your life and eventually it will permeate and it will ruin the rest of the church. If you live in sin, eventually you'll be confronted and you have one of two options. You repent or you rebel. And if you rebel long enough, people will either join you or you'll be church disciplined out. Now, when, when, when people decide to join, that usually means that, the, that there's something wrong here, that people are siding with sin as opposed to Scripture. You have to remember that as a Christian, your first allegiance is to God and his word. It doesn't matter if this person is your friend or your pal or your small group leader. You have to be willing to confront sin. Don't hide sin just because that person is close with you. In fact, if you love them, you will confront their sin as well. When you're caught in sin or if someone confronts you on your sin, what is your first response? Is it to confess your sin or is it to conceal it? It is natural for us to be like the Benjamites, to not let, to not let go of sin, rather go all out in defending our own sin. This is why it requires a tremendous amount of humility to say, Yes, I did commit this sin. And can you please keep me accountable? Can you please walk alongside with me? Can you please pray with me? Sin will only make you defend sin more, and sin will always escalate. If you just defend sin in your life, you will not only hurt yourself, but you'll hurt others as well. Do you share the same attitude as these wicked Benjamites who would rather side with the sinners than to side with God? You need to kill sin in your life before it makes you defend Sin. Sin causes you not to think biblically or correctly, and sin is not a friend of objectivity. It will obscure your mind and your heart. That's what sin does. It causes you to defend sin. Not only do we realize that sin makes you self-righteous or makes you defend your sin, but sin makes you turn against one another. Sin makes you turn against one another. That's our third point. Sin makes you turn against one another. Verse 18. Now the sons of Israel arose, went up to Bethel, and inquired of God, and said, Who shall go up first for us to battle against the sons of Benjamin? And the Lord said, Judah shall go up first. So the sons of Israel rose in the morning and camped against Gibeah. The sons of Israel went out to battle against Benjamin, and the men of Israel arrived for battle against them at Gibeah. Then the sons of Benjamin 
came out of Gibeah and fell to the ground on that day 22,000 men of Israel. But the people, the men of Israel, encouraged themselves and arrayed for battle again in the place where they had arrayed for themselves the first day. The sons of Israel went up and wept before the Lord until evening and inquired the Lord, saying, Shall we again draw near for battle against the sons of my brother Benjamin? And the Lord said, Go up against them. The rest of the 11 tribe asked God who's supposed to lead against the Benjamin, and surprisingly, God responds that Judah will go first. And this should look familiar because in Judges chapter 1, verse 2, they asked God the same question, who should go up? And they said, Judah. Interestingly, the, uh, this is something that like, God actually was willing to answer. The reality is that when we turn, when we turn to sin we'll eventually turn against one another. Over and over again, I've said that sin is never isolated. It impacts you and other people around you. In the case of the Benjamites, the Benjamites wanted to sin, and now they are at war with their own people. And in church, they function the, it functions the same way. If you ever wonder why their church division is always because one party is living in sin. One group in their, is, in their own sinfulness will sacrifice unity for the sake of personal interest. Sometimes things will escalate. Sometimes there are doctrine. Those things are rightfully in order to, to, to divide the church if it's over core doctrinal issues. Like if I came up and said, oh, we should say the Book of Mormons, yeah, you should go against me because I'm teaching heresy. But if it's something superficial, sometimes people are willing to divide a church over it. You notice in verse 19 to 21, the Israelites went up and, the, and they lost. The, they, they were out, they were somehow... They were somehow they were able to lose 22,000, even though they outnumbered the Benjamites. In verse 22 to 23, they lost and they went to weep before God, and then they asked God if they should go up, and God told them to go again. And verse 24 to 28, we'll see again. Then the sons of Israel came against the sons of Benjamin the second time. Benjamin went out against them from Gibeah the second day and fell to the ground again, 18,000 men of the, of the sons of Israel. All these drew the sword. Then all the sons of Israel and all the people went up and came to Bethel and wept. Thus they remained there before the Lord and fasted that day until evening, and they offered burnt offering and peace offering before the Lord. They lost, and then they went to fast. And they decided to make this offering. And again, if you see, like, fasted that day until evening, that's like, that's not a big deal because it's like you have to imagine the fight was in the morning to the afternoon. So they probably only fasted like three or four hours. Again, this is not like true repentance here. There isn't really a true brokenness. Even though they're offering sacrifices and burnt offerings and peace offerings, their heart is not there. They're not asking for repentance or they're not asking God to forgive them. They have this outwardly religious activity, but in their own hearts, they did not care about the things of the Lord. Verse 27, the sons of Israel inquired of the Lord, for the ark of the covenant of God was there in those days. And Phinehas, the son of Eliezer, Aaron's son, stood before, the, before to minister in those days, saying, Shall I yet again go out to battle against the sons of my brother Benjamin, or shall I cease? And the Lord said, Go up, for tomorrow I will deliver them into your hand. They lost again. This time they wept, fasted, and offered sacrifice. And what is strange in this moment is that the after the Israelites fasted and the proper lamentation procedure, they offer sacrifice, acknowledge God's presence in the ark. They even have the right priest, this guy named Phineas. We will talk more about him later. Um, 
we'll talk about him next week. Uh, they even got the right guy to go and, 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 make a, and ask a message for the Lord. But what's the difference between this third response compared to the first two? Well, this one, God gives them assurance. Now, commentaries often disagree why, this, why the Lord answers them and gives them, get, says that he'll deliver them in this third one as opposed to the first two. I hold to the view that this is one of those rare moments that they did, they actually did what God expects of them. They offer the right sacrifices, the response seemingly right. You know, they, have, they even have the right priests. Whereas the first two, they only ask and God responds by letting them do what's already in their own hearts. Whereas the third time, they seem to have a greater dependence. Notice that word, I said greater dependence. That doesn't mean repentance. They have a dependence on the Lord, but it's not full because they're not repentant. It's obvious because they're still in their sin. Notice that they offer these sacrifices and fasted, but they obviously never confess and try to restore their relationship with the Lord. It was mainly to just enact justice. There's a level of hypocrisy here in the text. Again, the, Benjamite, the Israelites condemned the Benjamites for their sins, but they didn't see this Levite sin. The Levites had a concubine, which is a violation of God's holiness. We see this in Leviticus 21, verse 7. And the Benjamites, who, who also committed sexual sin, was seen as committing some worse sin. They failed to see that all sin is offense to God. We can have the same type of tendencies as well. We can rebuke one sin over another. Or to say one sin deserves grace while other sin requires church discipline. All sin needs to be dealt with no matter how great or small it is. When we fail to deal with sin seriously and choose to decide which sin can be, we can be sensitive to, we are no different than the Israelites and the Benjamites uh, that are doing what's right in their own eyes. We can't be selective in the sin that we repent of, and we can't be, we, we can't be picky on the, on the things that we want to be holy in. If we see sin, whether it's in our own life or in other, we must be willing to confront it. Verse 29. So Israel set men in ambush around Gibeah. The sons of Israel went up against the sons of Benjamin on the third day and arrayed themselves against Gibeah as at other times. The sons of Benjamin went out against the people and were drawn away from the city, and they began to strike and kill some of the people as as other times on the highway, one on which goes up to Bethel and the other to Gibeah, and in the field about 30 men of Israel. The sons of Benjamin said, They are struck down before us as at the first, but the sons of Israel said, Let us flee that we may draw them away from the city to the highways. Then all the men of Israel arose from their place and arrayed themselves at Baal Tamar, and the men of Israel in the ambush broke out to their place even out of Mereth Gebah. Then 10,000 voiced men of Israel came against Gibeah, and the battle came fierce. But Benjamin did not know that disaster was close to them. Basically, what happens is that they were fighting. They're like, they were fighting, and they realized, oh, let's, let's try to do a tactical move. Let's get them out of the city, because there was a city that protected them. So when they fled, the Benjamites thought, oh, hey, they're running. Let's go after them. So they went out and chased after them. And eventually, uh, when they were far enough, there was this, another group of people that went in and to attack them. Uh, once they lured the Benjamites far away from safety of their own walls, the, these, uh, this other group of Israelites got up from their posts and, and quickly moved in. Verse 35, And the Lord struck Benjamin before Israel, so that the sons of Israel destroyed 25,100 men of Benjamin that day, all who draw the sword. In the end of this campaign, the Benjamites lost this 25,100 of their own people. And we see, 36, So the sons of Benjamin saw that they were defeated, 
when the men of Israel gave ground to Benjamin because they relied on the men in ambush whom they had set against Gibeah. The men in ambush hurried and rushed against Gibeah. The men in ambush also deployed and struck all the city with the edge of the sword. Now the appointed sign between the men of Israel and the men in ambush was they would make a great cloud of smoke <clears throat> rise from the city. Then the men of Israel, Israel turned in the battle, and Benjamin began to strike and kill about 30 men of Israel, for they said, surely they are defeated be before us as in the first battle. But when the cloud began to rise from the city in a column of smoke, Benjamin looked behind them, and behold, the whole city was up in smoke to heaven. Then the men of Israel turned, and the, ben and the, and the men of Benjamin were terrified, for they saw that disaster was close to them. So basically what happened was that when they ran out and the Benjamin chased after them, they were fighting, and then the people went in, they started attacking the city. So now, and the Benjamin saw, and they started going back, they, they wanted to go back into the city, but now they're sandwiched. So then that's how the Benjamin's lost. This is a strategic way to try to destroy them. And this, this is the same event that happened, you know, it's actually from 36 and to 41. It's actually the same event, but from a different perspective. That's why I just described the same event twice. But from 36 to 41, it's from the Benjamites' uh, point of view. Again, the main body of the Benjamites did not realize what was going on. The Benjamites were able to kill 30 Israelites, so they thought it gave them a boost of confidence. And as the Benjamites were chasing the Israelites, another group of Benjamite Israelites entered the city and destroyed them. They burned the city, and they had this little signal saying, okay, it's, I'm, I was thinking like, you know how like back then people would, or no, Boy Scout people, they'll still like, they'll make smoke signals, you know, they're like, okay, they'll make a fire, put something over, and then they, people are supposed to decode the cloud. That's what's going on here. They said, okay, we got the city, and then they're like, oh, no, we won, and let's go and attack the Benjamites, and then the Benjamin looked and see the cloud, like, okay, we lost our city. The Benjamites didn't realize this until they turned back and saw the city was, on, it was, was burning. Verse 42, therefore, they turned their backs before the men of toward the direction of the wilderness, but the battle overtook them while those who came out of the city destroyed them in the midst of them. They surrounded Benjamin, uh, they surrounded Benjamin pursued them without rest, and trod them down opposite Gibeah toward the east. Thus 18,000 men of Israel fell. All these were valiant warriors. The rest turned and fled toward the wilderness to the rock of Ramon, but they caught 5,000 of them on the highways and overtook them at Gibeah and killed 2,000 of them. So you can see uh, as they're chasing them in this pursuit, their numbers were, the Benjamites, their numbers are dropping. So all the Benjamites who fell that day were 25,000 men who draw the sword. All these were valiant warriors. But 600 men turned and fled toward the wilderness to the Rock of Ramon, and they remained at the Rock of Ramon, Ramon four months. The men of Israel then turned back against the sons of Benjamin and struck them with the edge of the sword, both the entire city with the cattle and all that they found. And they also set on fire all the city which they found. As the Benjamites attempt to, to escape to the wilderness and run all over, they were sandwiched and they were destroyed. Some of the Benjamites were able to escape. 600 were able to find uh, a place to hide for four months. What is interesting and sad is that if the Israelites were as zealous to the, get rid of the Canaanites as well as, uh, as they were to their own people, they would have been able to purge the land of the Canaanites' religion and influence. But again, they let them stay in the land, and this is, it has influenced their thinking. They became so backwards that they end up striking their own people. They were zealous against their own as opposed to the Canaanites. 
due to their own selfish desires, they adapted the lifestyle of the world, and this is how a nation is when they choose to do what's right in their own eyes. When they look at the world, they see how they're doing what's right in their own eyes. They think, oh, we should adopt that worldview ourselves. The entire camp suffered because of one individual tribe's sin. All Israel suffers for the sin of one tribe. Again, this is overkill here. This is not an eye for an eye. The group of Benjamites assaulted this one woman. As a result, Israel killed the, all the women, Benjamite women, children, and even animals and nearly committed genocide. The relatively right thing to do is actually to capture those men and figure out who did it and then and kill those individuals. But instead, this was a bloodbath. Men from both sides were lost, and the Benjamites lost their city and nearly lost their entire tribe because they tried to protect their own sin. Had everyone confessed their own sin and not hide their own sin, none of this would have happened. Again, all of this happened, if you remember all the way back to verse 1, is because of this one priest twisting a story. When I was in high school, actually when I was in elementary school, I, I grew up in a Christian school. It's like K to 12 kind of school. Uh, and I remember there was this, in, this mysterious figure that, is always, that people kind of like talk about, but they don't really want to talk about. It's kind of like a boogeyman. And I only knew of this person's existence because our school had like a Chinese department, and they would make their own textbooks. That's how Chinese they were. They made their own textbooks. And in one of the pages, they, they make this reference to this pastor there. And then it was, and they translate Chinese, people will say this, and you'll basically learn Chinese words. But this pastor was apparently was a pastor at the school at one point. So they made like a workbook around this guy. And I remember when, when I read this, I was like, who's this guy? His name was Dr. Lightfoot, and, uh, or Pastor Lightfoot. And they said, hey, hey, that name, you have to cross it out. Cross this name out. And I was like, okay. So we crossed it out. And that's, it. that's like the first time I, heard, I had references of him. Then over time, as I grew older and I went through, I got saved, and then I started going through the high school, they, that name just kept coming up again. And I was like, who is this guy? And I found out that in our school history, this pastor here was a pedophile. For the longest time, he was hiding this in for years. And the only reason why people even knew about that was because those kids that he assaulted grew up and talked about it. That's why later on, that's why how I heard it later on. It was like older people say, hey, you're, you go to that school where there's that pedophile. I was like, who? And there's like Lightfoot. I was like, oh, that's a guy in that textbook. And it was crazy because I, when, I, when I went to my, when I was a senior, I asked them, like, I went to the principal's office and I was like, hey, man, who is this guy? I've heard of him. And, they're like, and, they, and he and some of the admin just told me the whole story. And it was horrifying. Because he, was, he would, have, he would like invite these students into his office, and he would tell them to do things. And one way that he covered himself was he started slandering. He started making up lies, started telling everyone about each other. He, he turned on them. He would say, oh, that this teacher, you don't need to take, uh, you, you, can't, you can't take this person seriously because they're like this and this and that. Or you can't take that teacher seriously because he's this and this and that. So when an investigation came, they were asking him, like, hey, uh, is, this, is your pastor really like that? And they would say, no, no, uh, they'll discredit him. Basically, it was, he was subtly planting these, these sayings so that there would be this character assassination. One of my teachers said, like, yeah, he told everyone that I was a homosexual and no one took me seriously. There were some people that, like, had hints that this guy was doing something wrong, but then because of what he said to other people behind their backs, no one trusted each other. And eventually... He was caught, but he, uh, and it was, it was maddening because 
this guy named Lightfoot, he has named Lightfoot, so he's Native American. So when they were gonna, when the cops were gonna get him, he decided to run to a Native American reserve, and you know, like Americans have no jurisdiction in those in those places, so he was able to get away. Now, before we pat, we get grossed out and become critical of this one man, I want you to look at your own life. Not that like you're a pedophilia. I hope you're not. That's not you. But this can happen to you, or in some cases, is already going on in terms of causing division. If you live in sin, you eventually delude your mind into thinking that your way is correct. You'll do all that you can to try to cover your own sin. You'll attempt to get others to join you on your side. Church division is always subtle. It's never something so overt like saying, oh, we should, just, we should rise up against the church. It will be something like this, oh, this church is too legalistic. And they'll, they'll say it in a really tactful way so that it doesn't come across as slander, but it really is. Or this person is too overbearing, or this pastor's like this, this elder's like this, or that individual's like this. And I'm not just straight, talking strictly with the church, but even friendships. You know, the reason why there's sometimes there's click is sometimes because of the way people talk about one another. And then they cause, they have this presupposition about individuals. Again, you may not, you, you may be saying these things. You may plant little divisions here, little visions, divisions there. You may water it, and over time, those things will destroy the church from within. Titus 3, verse 10 reads, Reject a factious man after a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. Again, we can be like this priest. This whole civil war thing started because the entire nation was mad at but, but it's partially because this priest made up a lie. He, he chose to hide and speak half-truths. And it's funny when people say, that, oh, it's, it's just a white lie. I suppose that's okay. Or it's half-truth. It's like, okay, if it's half-truth, then what's the other half? It's a lie. Don't be the Christian that, that tries to plant division within the body of Christ. Do you see this as a pattern in your own life? Don't be a Christian that loves their sins so much that they're willing to take everyone down with them so that they can hide their sin. Sin turns you against one another. Turn your sin to God by confessing and repenting, but don't turn your sin against your own brothers and sisters within the church. I titled the sermon, Bad Versus Evil, because there are no heroes in the story. No one is on God's side. Everyone was doing right, what's right in their own eyes. One just seems relatively worse than the other. There are no good guys in this story. Just bad people were waging a war against evil people. Both sides of this conflict are wrong because both sides are doing what's right in their own eyes. This priest here smudged the information to get people to go to war while the Benjamites didn't want to relinquish the, these sinful individuals. And said, each of them fought what they believe was right. There are no good guys here. Both parties are wrong. Even though the Benjamites seem like they're more in the wrong, that doesn't justify the other 11. Both are sinning against the Lord. It is truly the human propensity, disposition, and tendency to elevate particular sins that God does not elevate or to devalue other sins that God considers horrendous. All sin must be viewed with the same level of seriousness, and everyone, everyone must shun and submit to the word of God. In our modern times, part of the reason why everything seems so morally gray is because we live in a society that's trying to get rid of any type of moral or any notions of morality. 
This makes sense in the world. It's, it's confusing outside the world, but it should not be inside the church. This is the norm of the world, but it should not be those in the body of Christ. 1 Timothy 3.15 tells us that we are the, we are the church. This is a pillar of truth. We know what is right and wrong because we worship a God that, is, that has established what is right and wrong. And whenever you look at this situation, this isn't choosing a side. Remember that they're both evil, and the only side that they needed to be on was on God's side, and they chose not to do it. Even though they did all these religious activities, even though this priest was there, even though they offered these sacrifices, they still cared about their own desire more than God's. When you see a society, and at times even the church commits sin, you as a faithful Christian is not to side with the people for the sake of taking sides, but it should be you taking the side of the Lord. He's the one that established right and wrong. He's the one that we must be loyal to. Now, if we want to be a faithful church, we must take sin seriously. Over and over again throughout the entire book, the whole point of this is that we need to fight sin. We need to go all out against sin. Don't make compromises in your life because it's comfortable or because it's your, for your own pride or because you're, that's your friend or you don't want your name or reputation to be messed up. Confess your sins because they will eventually destroy your life and ruin those around you. My hope for us this evening is to take sin seriously. In fact, every message that we've talked, the majority of the messages in the book of Judges is that, is that we need to take sin seriously. And, may you, and may, may you be convicted by some of the things that we looked over in this chapter. That doesn't matter if it's less wrong or more wrong. Everyone, if they're doing what's right in their own eyes, it's a sin against the Lord. May we evaluate our own hearts, see, look at Scripture, make, allow Scripture to be the mirror to show us where we are lacking. Let us pray. Lord, we are... So tempt, we're so easily tempted by the ways of the world and by the ways of our own flesh. But we ask you for grace to, to mature us, to make us continue to be sensitive towards sin. May we never be a people that take sin lightly. We know that it can lead us to some temporal pleasures, but it will never give us true satisfaction. Not only that, it will only lead to pain. And I ask for all of us, that we fight sin, that we guard our hearts, that we don't defend sin, that we, that we expose sin, that we speak truth into one, of each, one another's lives so that, that we can, so we can care, because we care about each other, because you take sin seriously, so, so must we. Lord, give us the conviction to stand up, not for any particular sides on whatever party or any division, but may we be people that always take your side, or that we always align our will to your own, even though our flesh constantly wages war against your word, we know that you are dwelling in us, and greater is he who's in us than the things that are in the world. Lord, be with us now in our discussion time, that it would be a time that we can uh, open up to one another, that we can um, show one another that we care by praying and discussing how we can apply the truth in our lives. Pray these things in your son's name. Amen.